Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. You can find me on Twitter or on Facebook at Chris Rawl. You want to read anything that I've written or listen to any episode of this show, head on over to www.chrisrawl.com and you can contact me via email at chris at ceo.com. Now, we move on to today's episode where I talk about drafting players and the role that chance, luck, and evaluation play in building a competitive franchise. I have long maintained that nobody knows anything. I am one of those people, I will widely admit it. Now, the smartest amongst us understand this particular idea. You know nothing. And because of this, they give themselves as many cracks as possible at accomplishing their goal. It's simple logic, right? That trial and error will eventually lead you to success in some form because humans progress if they're doing the same thing over and over and they're going to get better in some capacity. Now, this is something that occurs in every facet of life. This is something that occurs in building a competitive franchise. Uh, And within this process, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. And the three things that I want to talk about for today's show are what I mentioned at the top, chance, luck, and evaluation. Now, I'm thinking of this because the NFL Combine is coming up shortly. It is an enjoyable event for me uh, because it reminds me that football exists, which has already started to bleed out of my body post-Super Bowl and post-National Championship. Uh, And it's one of the few things that exist in the world of sports that are tangentially related. They are not played on the field or on the court. Most of that stuff I kind of despise, the -the off-the-court or off-the-field drama that really has consumed a lot of sports coverage, and that a lot of people like. I think I'm in the minority there. That's fine. But the NFL Combine and the NFL Draft are two off-field events that I really like because I get to learn a lot of information. I find them to be interesting. And most of all, I get to further explore my understanding of that simple idea. We don't know anything. Even the smartest people in the world who are getting paid exorbitant amounts of money to evaluate draft prospects and understand who will fit nicely onto their team, even these people have to dumb it down to simple trial and error. Same process that I use, the same process that you use. This is the way that it works in trying to find success in some capacity. So the NFL Combine is coming up which means the NFL draft is coming up, I believe, on April 28th through 30th. So tail end of next month. So right now I've been listening to a lot of stuff about it. Uh, I've been reading a lot of stuff. The big boards are starting to come out. Everybody's got their takes on who's going to be good, who's going to be bad. They're throwing out hot takes and this. This year's draft class, there's all sorts of intrigue, as there is with every year. This year at the top of the draft, it kind of centers around determining who the best offensive tackles are, who the best defensive ends are. Everybody has a different opinion. This is a very divisive class when it comes to prospects. Everybody thinks that, now, Kayvon Thibodeau is great, but I draft Aiden Hutchinson over him, or vice versa, and then the same thing's going on with the tackles, and Evan Neal should be the best tackle off the board. No, Charles Cross from Mississippi State. What about the guy from NC State? I'm seeing all sorts of arguments. Now, Evaluation is obviously key in these kinds of situations. That's not a statement that's going to break any ground. Uh, Knowing what you can 
to the best of your abilities, knowing what you're doing to the best of your abilities. That's just key. Crossing all your T's and dotting all of your I's. Just really simple stuff, right? Doing your research, going through your interviews, checking their physicals, all that kind of stuff. Again, not groundbreaking, but strangely enough, it's still an element that can slip away from certain franchises who throughout this process will get really starry-eyed over a certain prospect and they'll mortgage assets, whether draft picks or players, to move up to select this defensive end or this quarterback or whatever. Sometimes it works. Most times it doesn't. Because if you believe that uh, this is just kind of random and there's a lot of luck and chance that's involved with drafting prospects, then you understand this is kind of just throwing darts at the dartboard. So if that's the case, stockpile assets, get as many darts as you can. And then in present day, what I think the smartest teams are doing is they go, they get as many cracks as possible. They go and they draft the most ridiculous athletic specimens that they can. And then they go from there. They trust they can coach them up, find ways to use them on their roster. It's kind of the consensus opinion in 2022 for how to build a good football team. You know, pointed a team like the Baltimore Ravens who kind of abide by that philosophy. They stockpile compensatory picks. They go and they draft athletic freaks and they say, we think that once we get them and put them in camp and all that kind of stuff, we'll find ways to utilize these really gifted athletic specimens. So that's one way of going about things. And within this particular draft class, uh, at the most important position, quarterback, quarterback league, everybody's raving about them, how important quarterbacks are, who you can and who you cannot win with, uh, how many teams need quarterback changes in order to be able to fulfill their expectations as a Super Bowl contender. This is the hot button issue in the NFL. So this year's quarterback class, it's a big giant six question marks in a row. Who the hell knows what's going on? Who the hell knows if any of these are quality starters? Uh, Valuation is going to play an enormous role. Just the simple evaluation of should we even draft a quarterback in this year's class? The people who are at the top of the quarterback board, you know, you could pick your Kenny Pickett from Pittsburgh or Matt Corral from Ole Miss or Malik Willis from Liberty. I think those are kind of the three consensus top three. They all have huge questions. You see none of them going in the top 10 of anybody's mock drafts because there's a lot of flaws that all of these people bring to the table. Uh, and in Willis's case, just really, really, really raw quarterback prospect. So evaluation is going to be key, draft or not to draft. But once you start thinking about the NFL draft in these terms, it's interesting to revisit what has happened in the past and how lessons can be learned from that in present day. Whether it's really important to evaluate correctly, duh, obviously, or on the other side, the side that I really like to talk about is just the role that chance and luck plays in elevating a franchise. So as much as every team that hits a home run on their draft pick wants to pat themselves on the back and say, we knew all along this was going to be such a great quarterback, very rarely is that true. Very rarely is the team who just picks number one overall. They say, this is the best quarterback. We're going to get them. And they are just the best quarterback. That's very rare that that occurs. So understanding that, you start to get into the realm of chance. You start to get into the realm of luck. You start to get into the realm 
where teams are passing over a certain prospect over and over and over. And then it falls to a team that, yeah, through correct evaluation says, maybe we'll pick this person here and they could do something for us. But they were reliant upon a lot of teams not selecting that player. You know, you look at the two best quarterbacks of the last 20 years, Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, and that's their story. Uh, a bunch of teams pass on Aaron Rodgers before he's drafted at the tail end of the first round. And yeah, it's great that the Packers picked him and it was controversial because they still had Brett Favre on the roster. However, they can't control that 20 some odd teams didn't select Aaron Rodgers and then they nabbed him in the mid-20s. With Brady, it's even more so because you had every team in the league pass over him four times, five times, six times before we're getting into the sixth round. Anybody in the entire league could have drafted Tom Brady. And nobody did until the Pats snapped him up with six or in the sixth round. And part of me says that's, you know, I give them props, I guess, for picking him, but I probably give them more props for the infrastructure that they created and putting Tom Brady into a really good situation and then being able to mine the best of his ability out of that situation. Okay, so hard evaluation, but in these two instances, for the Packers and for the Patriots, I think it's more about just chance and luck that led them to both of these prospects. And you have example after example after example. I love this kind of stuff. So just some of the stuff that was coming off the top of my head as I was brainstorming for this show, that's just from the recent past. I think about the role of evaluation for the LA Chargers with Justin Herbert, who is a, already a superstar. He's already one of the five best quarterbacks in the league. He just completed his second season. But they also were reliant upon other teams passing over him before they could draft him. Whether that was Cincinnati who drafted Joe Burrow, they're fine with that pick. I can assure you that Cincinnati's not feeling any amount of sadness about the choice to select Joe Burrow at number one. But two picks later, the Miami Dolphins are on the board and they need a quarterback. And their evaluation leads them to draft to attack of a law, which now you're looking to a sandwich between Joe Burrow, the guy who just went to the Super Bowl, who's quickly storming into the top eight quarterbacks discussion. And then you have Justin Herbert, who already is right in the thick of things for this guy could be the best quarterback in the league in almost no time. Evaluation, luck, chance, all of that kind of stuff, blending together to drastically alter the courses of these franchises. Uh, in this case, Miami sitting there with that huge hole still sitting at quarterback on a roster that is really good. And the Chargers are sitting there saying, as long as we don't biff on ourselves, we're completely set up for the next decade with this guy under center. Uh, another good example, you go back a little bit before that and you say, Cleveland Browns and the New York Jets and the Buffalo Bills, they all had choices. And the Bills were the last team to be able to assert their evaluation, their opinion on who they should draft. They all needed quarterbacks. And the Browns, their evaluation led them to Baker Mayfield at number one. And the Jets, their evaluation led them to Sam Darnold a couple picks later. And then the Bills are on the clock and they pick a very controversial draft prospect at the time named Josh Allen out of Wyoming that most people said, this is stupid. This guy should not be getting picked in the top 10. He's shown us nothing in college. He's completing 50% of his passes. I don't see what the Bills see. And a couple of years later, Josh Allen is runner-up MVP to Aaron Rodgers last year. This year, he puts together an, another great season and plays 
maybe the best playoff game I've ever watched a quarterback play in the loss against Kansas City. And you give props to the Bills for evaluating and also much like the Brady situation, creating the infrastructure around Allen, putting him into a situation that he was able to grow comfortable in and say, all right, we are doing everything in our power to make your transition easy and we're going to set you up for success. And now we're going to trust that your talent is going to shine through, which is how it's played out. A couple years prior to that, you have what now has kind of been forgotten because this stuff happens almost every year. It'll probably happen again this year as we're determining between Kenny Pickett and Matt Corral and Malik Willis. And maybe one of them's good and the other two are just garbage. But a couple years prior, Chicago Bears need a quarterback. And they get starry-eyed over a certain prospect. They say, nope, it's not about darts on the dartboard this year. We are so convinced in our evaluation. We're so convinced that we're correct. We have so many scouts and so much brain power. And we understand who the quarterback is that we need. So we're going to trade up to the number two slot. We're going to send all these draft picks and all these assets to the San Francisco 49ers to draft Mitchell Trubisky at number two because we think this will alter the course of our franchise. And they were correct. It's not in the way that they wanted. It sent them into a nosedive. And 10 picks later, you have two quarterbacks go off the board. One is Patrick Mahomes, and one is Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson, he's got his off-field stuff going on, but for on-field performance, nobody will be able to doubt the difference between Mitchell Trubisky and Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson. Another story of this stuff. Valuation how it can completely hamstring you if done incorrectly. And chance and luck when a player falls. And then back to evaluation again when the Chiefs say, "Mm, we like that Mahomes guy, so we're going to trade up a little bit and we'll grab him, even though we have Alex Smith on our roster, even though we've already won 10, 11 games because we think this could alter the course of our franchise. And it has. Sometimes it is cut and dry. Uh, Again, it's rare. But sometimes it's as simple as a team has the number one pick and they need to make a decision that at the time is not as easy as it seems. And they make the correct choice and their franchise, the course of it is altered. I would go back over 20 years and I would remember the Peyton Manning, Ryan Leaf draft, which seems funny in retrospect for those of you who didn't live through that. It was a huge issue of who you should pick. Peyton Manning, he was the pros pro. He played at Tennessee. There were questions about him not being able to win because he hadn't won a national title at Tennessee and he lost the big games to Florida and he just gotten dumped by Nebraska in the Orange Bowl his senior season. And Ryan Leaf was the toolsy prospect out of Washington State. Big, strong, could throw the ball a mile. Imagine what this guy could be if he grows into his skills. So they're debating who's going to get, you know, who should the Colts pick at number one, which leaves the next person for the Chargers at number two. Colts. They evaluate, they say Peyton Manning, and the rest is history. Ryan Leaf, one of the biggest draft busts that we can remember. Peyton Manning, one of the best quarterbacks that's ever existed. So there's so much of this stuff. And the course of a franchise can be drastically altered for years, for decades, depending upon which way one of these three components goes. Chance, luck, evaluation. So let's branch out. The NFL draft is coming up. We got other sports going on. They're playing on the court. They're playing on the ice. 
And so as I'm thinking about this, uh, I go, hmm, this is an interesting subject to go over in the context of the person who is probably the biggest story in the NBA right now, John Morant. He's being celebrated. He's being applauded. He is electric and for my money, the funnest player to watch in the NBA in present day. Now, if you rewind with me a year ago, uh, I'm going to all of the Utah Jazz games and the Utah Jazz draw the Grizzlies in the first round. So I know Jaws good, obviously. Uh, coming out of Murray State, people are excited about him. He goes number two to the Grizzlies. He's young, he's electric. The people who want to poo-poo him, they're going, well, he's got to learn how to shoot outside and his jumper is a little shaky, but you can't deny the athleticism or the competitive fire or the stuff that really makes jaw a draw. So first round against Utah. I got seats that are up close. And so I'm here to watch three different times, games one, two, and five of that series. I'm watching the jaw show up close. <laughs> and I already know that he's good. I already know that he's fearless. I already know that he is an electric athletic specimen. But seeing it up close in games of this magnitude, it's kind of a different ballgame for me. So I'm watching it going, holy shit. This guy is as fearless a player as I have watched. He's just torpedoing himself at the rim again and again and again, where the best rim defender in the NBA awaits, Rudy Gobert. Sometimes he's scoring, sometimes Rudy's stopping him, but there's just something going on there that... <laughs> These two people who are completely unafraid of plays at the basket and getting embarrassed in one way or the other. And they're saying, I don't care. I'm going to come again at you. And Rudy's saying, all right, I'm going to be here. Uh, game two, Josh scores 47 points in that series. He's 15 for 26 from the field. He's 15 for 20 from the line. And after that game, I'm just sitting there going, holy cow. I mean, if this guy can fill out the fringes of his game and just you know, grow into his skill set a little bit more. The sky's kind of limit. This guy is going to be an incredible basketball player down the road. Now, I had no idea what was coming this season because I was projecting not deep, but years into the future because he still was raw on the edges and I'm still going, yeah, he's got to improve that jump shot. He's got to improve the three-pointer, all that kind of stuff. Just his general court sense, it's going to improve with time. That's just the way it works with these players who are smart and driven like Ja is. but. Again, I have no idea what was coming this season where we sit in early March and Memphis is the three seed. Nobody really saw that coming. They've flushed out their roster in their team building outside of Jaw, But we've also seen Jaw make an incredible leap, whether it's just straight points per game, an eight point jump from 19 to 27, whether it's that field goal percentage jumping from 45 to almost 50 this year, whether it's that three point percentage, which jumps from 30 to 34 and a half as of this recording. But we've seen Jaw across the board make all of these jumps. So now we're really starting to understand, all right, this dude, he's picked number two overall, and he is a genuine cornerstone for this team. He's a genuine cornerstone for the league because he gets eyeballs. He is electric. Again, he is the funnest player to watch in basketball. But just for this individual team, the Grizzlies are licking their lips and saying, we have a championship caliber player that we can build around starting right now. Now, 
we circle back to that draft because it's really uh, interesting and nourishing food for thought as we trace the beginning of the arc of this particular Grizzlies team. And we expand out to the concepts I was talking about a lot earlier with the NFL draft. Uh, Valuation, yeah, plays a role, but sometimes chance and luck, it just, it shines on you in the right way while pissing on somebody else in the wrong way. 2019 draft. It's known as the Zion draft at the time because everybody agrees that Zion Williamson is the draft choice at number one. Lottery as it's coming down the chute. Everybody is just dreaming of the number one pick because we have this specimen, Zion Williamson playing at Duke. That just seems once in a generation, oh my gosh, he's going to be incredible. And the Pelicans win the lottery and everybody's freaking out. Oh my gosh, they got number one again after the Anthony Davis draft. Wow, crazy. And Memphis comes in second. And Memphis isn't, you know, I don't think they're sitting there crying in their soup at the time because they go, all right, you know, it's a two-player draft. And while Jaw's not Zion, we still think Jaw could be great. But uh, in, in our heart of hearts, I think everybody in that year's draft said, I want Zion Williamson. He is the true generational prospect guaranteed. So for the Pelicans, it seems like an incredible turning point for a franchise that had just shipped out unhappy Anthony Davis to the Lakers. Seemed like a great stroke of luck. Out with the one star who was unhappy, who wanted out in New Orleans. Now in with the new guy. Guy that we can build around and who's going to carry us through the next decade. So Pelicans in present day were a couple years later. It's not that far removed from this draft, from this time when we all understood and agreed uh, the Pelicans hit a home run just by falling backwards into number one in the lottery. Pelicans in present day, they're just, they're in incredible limbo because we know what's going on with Zion. He's unhappy, maybe. At the very least, he's been completely uncommunicative. Just echoes of how Kawhi Leonard forced his way out of San Antonio where we had no idea what was going on and we're going, uh, do you, what's going on? Do you want to play basketball? Do you like this franchise? What's going on with your injury? Let's start there. Are you, when are you playing basketball again? Nobody knows any of these answers. Nobody knows if and when Zion will be able to stay healthy, period, on a basketball court, much less flash the talent that he's flashed in his off-injured NBA career. But when he's been on the court, especially last year when he's averaging 27 and 7, I mean, you go, all right, I see the talent, but. Now we got a lot of other problems that we got to sort through. The Pelicans now, they're selling assets down the road to get C.J. McCollum just to push for the play-in, just to try and convince Zion, hey, we have a core here that you can come and play with. Uh, Brandon Ingram's here and McCollum now and, and Herb Jones, and we got some people just come back and, and, and we can make things work. It's like the desperate plea to the, to the lover that's leaving you for somebody else or at least contemplating it. Now we're sitting here going, is it possible for Zion with his body to ever have a normal NBA career where he is consistently on the court? Doesn't seem like that would be a realistic expectation for the Pelicans. Chance, luck, not shining on that franchise right now. Now on the other side is the number two pick. Because it's the Zion draft, because everybody on planet Earth agrees who should be going number one. John Moran is sitting there too. So now we have the Grizzlies. We have the story of the NBA regular season so far. The ascension of John Morant, who 
everyone agreed, myself included, was the consolation prize to Zion. Consolation prize. Think of applying that term right now to John Morant, the dude that we're watching every single night just do jaw-dropping things. I mean, he's led every NBA discussion this week. All the podcasts that come through my feed, they're all dedicating huge sections to Jaw's game against the Spurs earlier this week where he drops 52 on the team. He puts poor Jakobodl in a body bag with that jam at the end of the first half. He shoots in the craziest halftime buzzer beater that I can ever remember. Full court pass from Steven Adams. He catches it going out of bounds with no time on the clock and just throws it up and in. I mean, it's the celebration of Jaw week. So you can go and listen and read a lot of stuff about him right now. But as I was consuming all of this and throwing my own two cents in the ring for the celebration of Jaw, I'm also thinking, man, the sliding doors about this, this particular situation is crazy. The Grizzlies are at one and the Pelicans are at two or some other, t- like just the amount of random chance that goes into the lottery and how that plays out is astounding. And yeah, I give the Grizzlies tons of props because they evaluate a lot of players correctly. Uh, Desmond Bain comes to mind, somebody who's really made a, a jump from where he was last year this year, but they just got a lot of depth pieces. They evaluated well, they drafted well outside of the top of the draft. And so that's why they have a lot of depth now. But at the same time, it's just a random thing that occurs. You get the number two pick in that year's draft. Everybody wants Zion, so you get John Morant, and now this is where we are. So that leads into the other sport that's going on, the NHL. And as I expand this discussion outwards for evaluation, chance, luck, the role that drafting players has on a franchise and the way that sometimes you evaluate correctly, Great, tip your cap, and other times just somebody falls to you, and yes, you still have to evaluate, but just other teams whiffed on not drafting this player, and oh my goodness, it is going to bite you in the ass for a long time. The Avalanche, they're the toast of the hockey world. They're on a historic pace. They are piecing together, as of right now, one of the best regular seasons in the history of the NHL. And there are two people who form the beating heart of the Avalanche right now, the two biggest stars on the team, Nathan McKinnon and Kel McCarr. And I want to talk about the drafts for both of those players specifically. 2013 NHL entry draft. The Avalanche get the number one selection overall. I'm ecstatic because the Avs have been wandering in the wilderness for the last few years. And I have expectations for this team because the prior decade and a half, they were one of the best teams in hockey. Forsberg, Sackick, Wah, you know the drill. And then all those guys had retired and left, and the Avs were just kind of bums. They get the number one pick. Great. And during this draft, if you want to talk about fan evaluation, I'm super pumped because Seth Jones is a prospect in that year's draft. Everybody's raving about him. Big, strong defenseman. He could just transform a franchise. He'll solidify your back end for a long time. Added bonus. He's the son of Popeye Jones, who played for the Nuggets at the same time that Joe Sackick was playing with the Avalanche. Joe Sackick's now the general manager of Colorado. Okay, man, this is a perfect thing. He's he's practicing hockey back in the day when these avalanche teams are going. It's like almost a return home for this incredible draft prospect. So I fall in love with the idea of Seth Jones coming back to Colorado, helping bring the franchise back to what they were before, solidify that back end, all the whole story. 
going, yes, draft Seth Jones number one. It's going to be great. Instead, the Avalanche, they evaluate who's there, what's going on. They draft a center that I know nothing about, Nathan McKinnon. And Seth Jones falls to Nashville at number four of that year's draft. So I'm kind of heartbroken because in my completely amateur evaluation that's based upon nothing other than just me being a person with a brain that thinks they know literally anything when I don't, I'm kind of bummed out saying, oh man, I, I hope this doesn't come back to bite us because I really would have loved Seth Jones and the Avs could use some defensive help. Yeah, they could use help everywhere, but I just think Seth Jones really could have transformed stuff. So McKinnon's rookie year, he plays great, you know? Uh, and the Avs ended up making the playoffs that year. Really electric season for the Avalanche. A lot of it was just luck-based, but it was a fun ride. It was a breath of fresh air for me as I'm wanting the Avs to be good again. And McKinnon that year, they play first-round playoff series against the Minnesota Wild. They end up losing a heartbreaker in seven games. But this is kind of McKinnon's coming out party. This is when I go, okay, Colorado. I am excited for what this guy is going to mean to the franchise. That year, he's got three points in game one. He's got four points in game two, seven points through the first two games. He slows down a little, but still by the end of this seven game series, McKinnon has 10 points on the board. He scores the overtime game winner in game five. And I see, all right, this guy is freaking young. He is a franchise center right now at this current point in time. As I start to project down the road, I go, okay, franchise cornerstone. I already see that happening. What is this guy going to be when he flushes out his skill set. And now we know he's one of the best players in hockey. He's played 612 career games. He has 612 points in them. Exactly a point per game player. So the avalanche, you go, yeah, you were bad. You got the number one pick. Uh, in a small way, like Manning with the Colts, I go, I give props to you because he made the correct selection at number one. And that's not always a given. If I'm there instead of Joe Sackick, I'm drafting Seth Jones and then ruining the day that I did that. When we're sitting here almost a decade later and I'm watching players like McKinnon or Alex Barkov on Florida that I could have drafted and going, uh, I really wish I had one of those centers instead of Seth Jones, who he's been good, but has never really fulfilled that promise that a lot of people saw in him during the 23 or 2013 draft. So that's the tale of one star player on the avalanche. You got the non one pick. You selected the correct guy. Everybody agrees that's the best player in that year's draft. Great. Okay. The second player, the second star, the second part of the beating heart of the Avalanche, Kel McCart. His story is a little bit more interesting and weaves together more of the themes of the show. Valuation, luck, chance. 2017 entry draft. Going into this year's lottery, the Avs are the worst team in hockey by a mile. The promise of that 2013 season kind of craters, shrivels up, dries up. They go back to wandering in the wilderness. So the Avs in the lottery, they have the best odds to get number one. The worst they can get in that year's draft is number four overall, which, oh, worst stroke of luck that can ever occur. I'm watching the lottery. I'm excited. And number four comes up and it's the Colorado Avalanche. And I go, this is just rotten luck. I can't even handle this. The abs are just doomed. I don't know what's going on, but they're just doomed. They're doomed. Now, in retrospect, this marks an incredible, incredible turning point for the franchise. Because we have that blend. We have 
simple look. And we have misevaluation from other parties. In this case, the New Jersey Devils, the Philadelphia Flyers, the Dallas Stars. Because New Jersey, they're number one. They say, we want a center. We're drafting Nico Hirscher. Philadelphia, they say the same thing. They go, we're taking Nolan Patrick. Dallas, they say, we love, we need a big time defenseman. And so we're going to go get one. And we think the best defenseman in the draft is Miro Haskinen. So that leaves the Avs sitting on the clock at number four. They draft a dude named Kel McCarr out of Boston. So I go, great, sure, whatever, I don't care. I'm, I'm still pissed about this, that the Avs didn't have the number one pick. And a couple years later, McCarr makes his debut in game three of the playoffs against Calgary. And the next series, he, he scores a goal in the first period of his first ever game, game three against Calgary. I've talked about this multiple times on this show, so I won't talk about that particular story. But already my eyes get raised and I go, this guy looks like he belongs, period. But the Avs beat Calgary. They go on to play San Jose Sharks, one of the best teams in hockey the next round. Hard-fought seven-game series. But there's a shift in that series where, much like John Morant's game two against the Jazz, I really start to make sense in my mind of the current trajectory of this player and what they're showing right now and what that means for their future because of how young and how talented they already are. There's a shift against San Jose in that second round series. Uh, they're kind of bouncing McCarr around the lineup. The Avs are down at this particular time. So they're pairing him with Sam Gerrard. They're saying, we need an offensive. We're just going to go all out. And it's about a minute long shift. The Avs don't even end up scoring on the shift. But what's going on is just a continual cycle where McCarr is everywhere. He's darting over here. He's making a pass here. He's cutting to this. Just all the stuff that now we take for granted with Kill McCarr. But I'm seeing it clearly for the first time against a really good team. And I'm going, holy shit. This is incredible. This guy's a teenager right now. What, what, what could this guy be down the road? And now we're starting to get a better sense of it. Because Kel McCarr, just a couple of years removed from that, still incredibly young. He's the gambling favorite to win the Norris Trophy or the best defenseman in hockey. He currently leads NHL defenseman in scoring. He's got 58 points in 50 games. Currently leads NHL defenseman in goals. He's got 18. He currently has 152 points in 151 career games. A point-per-game defenseman. The same production offensively as Nathan McKinnon, who has been one of the very best offensive players in the world for over five years. We're seeing that from Kill McCart on the back end. So now, again, it's still young. This stuff can change, but you were creating odds in Vegas, you would say it looks very likely that the Avalanche have the best player from that 2017 entry draft. They got him at number four, just like in 2013, they got the best player overall that time at number one. But as I wrap all of this stuff up and I say, I'm so happy that the Avalanche are good, but there's just a lot of stuff that you can't control that plays a role in shaping your franchise. I go, that's, I mean, that 2017 entry draft is an incredible sliding doors moment that those three teams pass on Kel McCarr. And I would love, you all know this because of how I think, but I would love to inject Joe Sackett with True Serum and get an answer on, hey, let's say that lottery went your way a little bit better and you got the one pick or you got the two pick or you got the three pick. Who would you be drafting 
if the lottery fell that particular way. I would love to get an answer, a truthful, honest answer, which you couldn't get now because they would just say, well, I'm picking Kelmacar anywhere, obviously. But go back in history. It's just another sliding doors moment. So props to the Avs for understanding Makar should go off the board at number four, but it's just another reminder amongst many that I've discussed on the show and many more that I'm sure are percolating in your guys' brains as you listen, but just another reminder of how large a role that chance and luck and misevaluation by other teams can play a role in shaping the course of a franchise. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. If you all would be so kind, please remember to download and subscribe to the show and rate it five stars on whatever podcast platform you listen to it on. Thank you and enjoy your weekend. 